Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to the Once Bitten podcast. And today's guest is Seth Peachy. If you're wondering who Seth Peachy is, um, don't worry. Very few of us would have heard of him. This is another one of those episodes where somebody via Twitter reached out to, to me um, on DMs with um, an incredibly long story, um, a very heartwarming story. Uh, you know, wanted, you know, Seth had found the podcast and uh, was getting a lot of value from it and wanted to say thank you, um, but also wanted to talk about homeschooling, something very, very close to his heart. He, he was homeschooled as a child and uh, went through... Um, the, the usual kind of um, problems with, with kids who, who face challenges with whether that's um, like in his specific case, uh, dyslexia. Um, and we get into that and he wanted to share his story um, about finding Bitcoin, being homeschooled, um, still being able to navigate a, um, a life after, after that and still being able to enter into the um, the education system when he wanted to and when he needed to, um, and ultimately flourish in it. So this is um, a story he felt compelled to to tell me um, via a very long DM, <laughs> which we get into. And you know, how could I not extend an invitation to come on the show and share that with the listeners as well? So this um, this one hopefully will uh, will resonate with with many of you out there that um, have already been through that system, may have faced the same kind of challenges, or are building a family and are asking questions about um, the future of your child's education. So. Of course, we get onto Bitcoin as well, and how Seth found Bitcoin and how that's shaping his um, his life. And uh, you know, he's a he's a young man looking for for answers, and um, really appreciate him coming on, being brave to come on and share his story, and um, be so open and honest and truthful, uh, just to try and help someone else out there that's probably that might find themselves in the um, in the same position. I hope you uh, enjoy this one. Um, before we get into it coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Go start stacking some sats if you are in the UK or if you have access to the UK banking system. 21ism. You can hear the music in the background. That's from Sir Badders himself. That is part of the James Bond mashup, Agent Orange, licensed to shill. These guys are doing some amazing work. It's not just him. Uh, there's some great Britcoiners doing some awesome work for 21ism. Um, I shill them because I love them and I want to help them. So get over and um, check them out. Follow them on Twitter. Let's get into it, guys. Uh, I hope you enjoy this one. And thanks again, Seth, for coming on. Thanks for reaching out. Thanks for being brave. And uh, let's get into it. Hey, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me today is Seth Peachy, who reached out to me uh, via DMs. Um, Seth, thank you so much for reaching out. Uh, thanks for... Um, uh, supporting the show, listening to the show, and and um, getting in touch. 
Oh, it was my absolute pleasure, Daniel, and I appreciate you having me on here um, so much. It's it's lovely to have the opportunity to chat to someone about Bitcoin, um, and yeah, not be kind of watching the eyes uh, roll back as soon as you uh, mention the topic. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. So. The way you reached out, I thought it was very, very funny. Um, hi, Daniel. Warning. This is probably the longest Twitter message you will ever receive, and I've spent far too long writing it. But I'm hoping that the subject matter lies sufficiently in your interest range and that you'll find it worth reading. And then it goes on, and we'll get into all of that. And it was a lovely message. It, you're right. It was the longest <laughs> one I've ever received. <laughs> so, And in there is a little bit about homeschooling, um, which obviously we have um, yeah, a shared interest in, in that yes. as well. So Lauren would probably ask the first question about that, maybe. Make sure you ask it to the microphone. Um, yeah, why did your parents decide um, to homeschool you? So um, that's firstly a really great question, Lauren. Um, you're, always, you're always a brilliant interviewer. So, um, yeah, you may want to pursue a, a career in uh, alternative media and, and interviewing people. Um, I think that my parents um, initially decided to homeschool um, because they were, they were listening to a lot of um, sort of educationalists and hearing a lot of stuff about how boys in particular um, tend to take longer before they're ready to learn in a classroom, sort of sitting at your desk sort of setting. Um, and what they were kind of hearing was, no, boys should be allowed to go out and dig holes and climb trees and... Um, just interact with the world and, and see what happens. Um, and, and I think they saw that because um, I had, I was kind of slow at developing in certain areas. I was quite slow to learn to write um, and quite slow to like learn my alphabet and things like that. And they were quite concerned that if I'd gone to school that I probably would have felt like I was stupid, um, that I didn't really have anything to offer. Um, and they were they were pretty convinced that I wasn't stupid, and so my mother um, <laughs> agreed agreed to uh, at least homeschool us until we were about six or seven, um, me and my brother at the time, and so that was the kind of initial um, decision. I, I think they just thought that school wouldn't be the best place in in the world for me, and um, it was until I was sixteen when that that opinion finally changed. So it was a, a little longer run than they were expecting. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, me and Samuel had trouble reading and writing, didn't we? Yeah, so um, you weren't the only one. Oh, thanks. You, you make me feel a lot better. I remember actually when I was around your age, Lauren, I, uh, maybe, I was, maybe I was eight or nine, I think. Um, I was walking through an airport and I still couldn't read at, at that stage. And I just said to my dad, like, why is the whole world about words? I've got this, I've got this, like, I feel like I'm walking through this environment where there's words everywhere. And I had a very good vocabulary at the time and could understand things, but just because I couldn't read, I had this 
strange feeling of being shut out from the very world that I was living in. And, and it was a kind of surreal, <laughs> surreal moment for me as I just saw all the advertising boards, all the signs, all the information everywhere. And at that point, I still couldn't understand it um, more than reading, you know, a few words at a time. But I couldn't process large amounts of, of written information. Um, but yeah. Yeah, sometimes I, I think to myself, why is there lots of words? Like, uh, I'm like, just why? You, you'd make a good philosopher, Lauren. Thank you. Philosophers ask questions like, why are there so many words? What is the meaning of language? (laughs) These are deep questions. Yeah. Is is Bitcoin just script? Is it just letters and numbers? Is do you think um, do you think Bitcoin? If you're living in a country where a lot of of things have genders assigned to them. Uh, do you think Bitcoin would be a, a male or female gender? Great question. Is it le Bitcoin or la Bitcoin? I think it might be a, f- uh, a male. You think so? Why yeah. masculine? Yeah, masculine. Why, why do you think it would be a male? Because it, like, I don't know, le Bitcoin, la bit- Bitcoin. Uh. <laughs> I think like le makes more sense than la. Just the way it rolls off the tongue. You yeah. Think? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, okay. I I think it might be female because it has cycles, and whenever you think you've finally figured it out, um, the difficulty it becomes more complex and harder to understand. So I think <laughs> yeah, it's I think it's definitely going to be uh, a female. It's a female because <laughs> there's an e at the end. There's no e at the end. <laughs> there is no. Okay, no, there's there's no. masculine. But yeah, you're right. There's a difficulty adjustment, <laughs> and uh, once a month maybe. <laughs> Sorry, female listeners. We are in rabbit holes we never, ever thought we would uh, get into. Um, do you have any more questions for, for Seth about... Um... I do have one, but mm-hmm. I've said it in podcasts before. Okay, that's fine. It's all right. Uh, when did you... When did you... Um, no, hold on. When did you... Figure out about Bitcoin? I think it's that. Well, I figure out about bitcoin never um i still don't think i have figured out about bitcoin but when i first heard about it it, i don't remember the first time i heard about it because i'm sure i must have come across it i remember the first time i learned anything about it i had already heard of it and that was in 2013 Um, I was studying philosophy at the University of York, and I had a friend who was studying maths and philosophy. Um, And she had done quite a lot of reading on Bitcoin and seemed to understand it quite well. And she brought it up to me. I, I think we might have been talking about economics or politics or something like that. And she brought it up to me and kind of explained it from a... I don't want to say like totally first principles, but from a from a kind of more first principles perspective that wasn't a kind of like based all around the price or, or things like that. And, and she had a, a decent understanding of it and has actually gone on to work in um, cryptocurrency. Um, and I remember thinking like, wow, this is really like a fascinating idea. Um, I, I really like the decentralized aspect of it. I thought the scarcity aspect of it was interesting. 
but I think at the time, because I was at university, I didn't really have very much money to speak of. I wasn't really buying anything on the Silk Road, or <laughs> I, di- I didn't have any uh, any use of a currency um, that that I could that would be harder to trace or things like that. Um, and so I I didn't really see like how it was relevant to me at that point. It, it, she wasn't really explaining it in terms of uh, like how this could be useful to the world. It was just like, oh, here's something that, you know, if you want to, if you want to find a way to, to use a currency like this, it's, it's a, an interesting idea. So at that point, I was of the opinion, like, this is the first of what will eventually become um, prevalent across, across the world. I kind of thought, okay, well, you know, the first the first motor car wasn't the Model T, so like it's it's going to take a little bit of time before the cryptocurrency is developed and this whole thing is is solved. Um, so that was probably the first time I got any kind of real understanding of Bitcoin. I thought it was interesting um, <laughs> as I've looked back at the price of it <laughs> at that point. I definitely wish I thought it was more interesting or perhaps had some form of interest that, that led me to buy it for, for some other illicit behavior. But at that point, I was, um, yeah, <laughs> I didn't have any need of a decentralized uh, online currency. Um, but yeah, does that answer your question, Lauren? Yep. And um, yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Can, okay. can I, I ask you a question, Lauren? Yep. Of your, of your time homeschooling, what have you found the most um, revolutionary compared to being at school? You did spend some time at school, didn't you? Yes. Yes, I have. So, so what so do you find is the biggest difference? Well, the biggest difference, I mean, school is fun, but not as fun as homeschooling. Homeschooling, you can do lots of fun things, like as in... 3D modeling, you can learn by having fun. So, but like at school, you learn and you have fun at the same time, but not as much as homeschooling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you ever get, um, so to put it into context for the listeners, at the moment, um, Lauren and Samuel, and one of our other daughters are on a, a self-directed education platform called GalileoXP.com or at Galileo. And um, so they do all their lessons online, remotely via Zoom calls. And um, they have different clubs. So 3D Modeling Club, Coding Club, Global Citizen Club, Math Club, Science Club. Oh, don't forget we have daily check-ins. And each day you have a check-in with... um, Except for Saturdays and Sundays. Of course. Um, With your facilitator, yeah? And um, so it's open for them to choose which um, clubs they join and, um, you know, whatever interests them. So then they just collaborate online with their friends and a facilitator and um, each lesson lasts between 45 minutes to an hour. But it's all kind of led by the students, Um, like that interest as everybody's logged in and ready to go. The facilitator probably turns up with some kind of class plan, but that just gets thrown out the window within a second. Because they will just follow whatever the first question is out of the kids' mouths and then, um, you know, perhaps split into breakout rooms and um, get some little presentations going, some discussions. Oh, you're in debate club as well, right? Yes, I'm in debate club. 
which is brilliant because that just promotes arguing within the home. So, wow, you know. <laughs> that is really yeah. great. I'm better than Samuel. No offense, Samuel, if he's listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you can, if you can get down the debate and negotiation, you can, you know, learn how to lose friends and alienate people in in your family. <laughs> well, um, She's already expert at that. <laughs> well, the thing is, me and Samuel argue all the time, and all the time he says that sometimes when I can't see something or or I can't hear him because he's whispering or he's low voice, he says, "Oh, you can't see anything." And I, and I said, "If I can't see anything, then how can I see you and everything else?" And then he says, "I don't know. It's just magic." Wow, that is that is quite a statement. I think one of the I think one of the most important things that you can learn through homeschooling is I think it does a better job of teaching you how to learn, which I think is the most important school skill that you can leave um, your childhood um, with is an ability, first, a, a love of learning, an interest in the world around you, an interest in understanding new things, curiosity, and then the ability to to find a way to learn about those things. Um, and, and I think if you leave, uh, if you, you know, become an adult quote unquote, um, and, and you have those two things, um, then there's a whole, a whole host of things that you could go on to be and you can learn about and, and you, you don't get as old as quickly if you keep learning. That's the key. (laughs) It's so true. And, um, this is what school is, you know, school has almost a 100% strike rate at killing a love of learning and um, spoon feeding information to kids rather than, you know, pushing them to go and find it, you know, what they need. Um, and especially in today's day and age, you can learn whatever you want on, you know, in, in 10 minutes on a YouTube clip, right? That's what you do, isn't it? If you want to learn something, where and do you Galileo go? Galileo as well. You can choose whatever you want. You can do... But if you wanted to learn something new, like um, we we found that baby bird the other day, the baby swift. Not so straight the other day, a few months ago. A few months ago, excuse me. Um, so straight onto YouTube, and you know, learning about that. And um, th- this is that's what I think. There's a big stigma around the word homeschooling. That 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 word kind of just puts this picture in people's minds of yeah, okay, you sit your kids down at nine o'clock at some kind of like dreadful flip top desk, you know, with a quill and the the, the, yeah, the, yeah. the dip ink and you're the, the teacher at the front of the classroom yeah. because it's so ingrained in us, that system. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it's not like that. Um, is there anything else that uh, you wanted to ask Seth? Or did you want to ask Lauren anything further? Um, I wanted to ask how you find having is Samuel's your twin, is that correct? Yes. So do you find that Samuel is your best friend as a twin? Or do you find that sometimes it's a lot of challenge to get on? So um, do you find he's your best friend or sometimes it's just um, too much fighting? Well, we fight a lot, but sometimes like we're friends. We argue, then we're friends, we argue, then we're friends, we argue. Or oh, the whole entire day we're friends and then we argue on the, in, in um, bed if, if um, we're in our sister's bed, um, Caitlin, if she, w- w- when she's gone. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes we argue with that, but you know. <laughs> That's really nice. So it means that you have a really good friend at school, even when you're being homeschooled. Um, me and my brother, we're only 16 months apart. Um, and so we were always very, very close um, growing up. And we similarly argued a lot, fought a lot. Um, but I think it was because we knew we loved each other so much that we knew we had such a high tolerance for one another, being mean to one another, that we could get, we could get away <laughs> with stuff that we would never do to anyone else. Because at the end of the day, we knew we would make up and, and get on. Um, yeah, we, we ended up fighting a lot. Um, but it was good. I learned a lot about conflict resolution through fighting with my brother. (laughs) That's what I keep telling myself. This is just, it's all good for them. Uh, You know, (laughs) even when they're arguing over like the the, the tiniest things. Yeah, we argue a lot about the, like, even if like, I don't know, if, if, if I got a bigger cookie, then we'll start arguing. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's something that's really worth fighting for. I've always said. <laughs> You'll be arguing over who has the most sats soon. Yeah. Or yeah. who has the most beer. Yes, exactly. Which, by the way, that has that has finished. So you've got a job to do. So you better say goodnight to yeah. Seth. Good night, what? Well, goodbye to Seth. Okay. <laughs> it's not your bedtime Good, yet, good evening, Lauren. Enjoy the <laughs> lovely French sunshine by the look of it. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's, um, it's a trouble because... It's just coming down on daddy. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Lawrence. Thanks, mate. Um, yeah, we may we might as well like stick and dwell on this um, this point of uh, like self directed education or alternative education. I air quotes, by the way, listeners, for alternative education. How can education be alternative? Right. This is yeah. it's only called alternative because you're not doing what the government have so kindly put in place for us as a human right, you know, to, um, to have yeah. this, um, in air quotes, again, free schooling. Um, how did, you know, do, do you, do you remember the, like, like the, the sideward glances that your parents would get at, at gatherings or that you might have faced as kids? Uh, like the stigma around homeschooling back then was far more than it is even now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I do remember a, a lot of it of my mum having to in social I think particularly in the UK um, my dad is American so um, when we would be over there it was much more accepted um, and common um, but in the UK it was I mean far more so than now it was something that was was really odd so um, I remember certainly as a kid, you know, if we would go with my mum shopping during the day or something like that, she had to pick up the groceries and she'd have four little, you know, ducklings in tow behind her and people, you know, making comments like, oh, you know, like inset day today or you got, you got, you're all out of school. Um, and just like, I think at some points my mum would just from the exhaustion of knowing okay this is going to be like a long conversation if i say it she'd just be like yeah you know we're we're just you know a few hours off school and we're going to be back and and just go that way um i definitely remember i remember the 
I think there was a little bit of pressure, like when we would do things like swimming lessons or sports or anything like that internally to like demonstrate. I think I felt uh, probably as an oldest child, I also think I have some like general sense of like wanting to represent my family well and, and not wanting to, oh, wow, I need to get one of those. <laughs> <laughs> a beer, beer delivery system. Um, Lauren just delivered me my second beer, so perfect. Thank you, Lauren. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, so I I think there was an element of like um, wanting to like perform well and and show that like we weren't the backwards hillbillies who <laughs> who didn't have anything to yeah anything to show for our you know hippie hippie parents in quotes. Um, so I, I think what was always interesting was teachers and coaches in, in environments outside of school, they would always feed back to my mom, like, oh my goodness, I can't believe like how well your children listen, how, you know, like respectful they are towards us where all the other kids like are just messing around doing whatever they want to do, no interest in in learning. Um, and and I do think a lot of that was just because like for us, this was like a quite different environment where we had normally chosen, you know, or I mean, it would be like you need to learn to swim, but we were like still wanted to be there or whatever. And so for us it was like, okay, we have an hour now where someone is taking out the time to teach us something and like I want to give my focus and like do the best at this that I can whereas for the other kids it was just another hour of their day that was essentially daycare which which I mean is essentially what I think the school system is it's just a way of making sure both parents can work <laughs> as much as possible and the state saying look you know we'll take these we'll take these off your your hands and uh give them a bunch of useless information that you know a quick google search will <laughs> will will tell them and um yeah so I, I think there was definitely um a lot of times where i could feel the pressure that my parents felt that like okay <laughs> we hope this kind of works out <laughs> and, and we've not made a, a, a horrendous decision here it's tough man it's tough um you know being a parent and in that position and having faced all of that judgment um i had the exact same the exact same experience in a supermarket uh not in countless times but one in particular in the uk um where we had the four kids with us and we were just doing the checkout. And by this time we'd been traveling with the kids for like almost two years. And, um, but the lady was just like, you know, at the checkout, you know, you're just all snarky and like, you know, Oh, school holidays, where you're from. And we're, you know, we're like, huh? Oh, oh, right. Yeah. We're going to go down that path. Are we? It's like, you know, God damn it. Uh, it's, I don't know. <laughs> how people feel so entitled to question your parenting. Like it's like a flash judgment. Your kids aren't in school, you're bad parents. And it's a, you know, it's, it's exactly, this is why I believe the Bitcoin community and the homeschool community are just intertwined, you know, one on each other. They just better hurry up and meet each other um, because 
they're so well aligned. You know, if you challenge the financial system, my goodness, we've all done that right in the pub. You just outcast immediately. Shut up, Dan. Shut up, Seth. Go sit over there. You're boring us again. Um, you hold a mirror up to people, right? It's the same with the school system. Um, and there's this sunk cost fallacy. People, they, they as soon as they realize, they don't want to realize. They don't want to go down that rabbit hole. What if everything you're saying is true? Holy shit, I spent 20 years in an institution and I come out with 150 grand's worth of debt. I don't need to be told right now that that was all a waste of time and I could have made my own way and I could have spent more time with my family and I could have learned things I was truly, truly happy and not forced to learn. And I could be doing a different job, something I'm not dreading to go to on Monday morning. It's too tough. Is that, that that pill is too bitter to swallow? Yeah. Well, I think I think so much of that is just that actually human beings feel so comfortable and so at ease in the herd mentality, and it just feels safe. You don't have to challenge anything. You don't have to think about anything. Um, and uh, I I think one example of that where that like really struck me was. Um, I come from a, a Christian background. Um, I had like quite a lot of philosophical kind of like wrestles with like understanding what it is that I believe and why do I believe it. Um, and so when I was at, when I did go to school at 16, um, I, I was doing quite well. I was generally seen to be the, you know, one, one of the better students. So when there was any sort of question about theology or philosophy and like, Oh, what, what's a Christian perspective on this set? Um, I, I was generally, you know, put up as the person who had to like offer some form of defense. And so I got very familiar with the leaps of faith that I was making and really like understanding why I believe the things that I believe in the things that I thought and thinking about things from first principles and and everyone kind of said oh like when you go to university and study philosophy that's going to be that's going to really like make it difficult and, and challenge that and you know and and what i actually found was that the shoe was <laughs> on the other foot that suddenly all of these people who had just had i guess the much more it, certainly in our culture in in the uk particularly the the southeast kind of wealthy affluent area if you believe certain things that the majority believe, no one ever challenges you or questions you. And you don't have to even challenge or question your own thoughts and opinions. And and philosophy forced some of these people to do that. And, and I just suddenly started to see them go like, oh, wait, like, you mean to even believe, you know, that, that the material world around me is like real, like is requiring me to make a a leap of faith that I'm not a brain in a vat being, you know, manipulated by a, by an evil scientist. Oh, wow. Like I didn't realize that that was like, <laughs> and so there's just, there's just so many things like that, where I think if you have the view that is the overarching accepted opinion, quite often you haven't really thought through your reasons for holding that view and maybe if you really did, you might you might not hold it so strongly, or you, or you might not hold it at all. And and I really see that as being school. Like the reason you send your children to school, 
is because you know that's that's just what you do and, and you can't ever be told you're wrong for making that decision and so it's safe and comfortable um and and i wouldn't rule out schooling as a schooling in the institutional sense as a I don't. I wouldn't throw the entire baby out with the bathwater and say that there's no role for it. Um, I, I certainly think that um, for me personally, to go at 16 was really good to have that like experience of what that system is like and, and learn from it, and I was able to to flourish to some extent. But I think the problem is that people just don't even question <laughs> the, the basic narrative. And recognize, you know, is school right for my child? Um, is is school right for every child? Well, obviously not. I think is the is, is the answer. Um, but yeah, totally, totally correct what you're saying. And you know, I, I've tried to beat this drum many, many times. It's not like those people that homeschool are anti-system or anti-school or anti-education. I mean, anything is further from the truth. Like you know, they're fully involved with education that's why they're making doing this research and uh, making these you know like life-changing decisions and going up against the narrative is very very difficult so of course yes you are you're fully in, involved in it um i just want people to understand that the choice is there like like you say you know the 2.4 kids the two cars the white picket fence the dog school that's what we've like that's what we think. Don't challenge that. Um, and, you know, the high-paying career and whatever else. And what's happening in the UK right now I think is pretty bad um, with this, like, go-back-to-school campaign that the government are brainwashing people with and, like, the very dangerous language coming out um, along the lines of it's going to be mandatory to go back to school come the 2nd, 3rd, 4th of September. I don't know what date they're, they're, they're trying to push. And I'm like, that is so bad and that is so wrong. And that's not, it's not mandatory. It's not, it's not law. You know, you as a parent, as a family, as individuals have the choice to do what you see best fit for your family. And in times like these, you've got the perfect card to play. You've got the ace up your sleeve. It's like, you know what? I don't want my kids to go back into crowded um, rooms um, because there's this thing called COVID, whether you, believe in it or not um it doesn't or i don't want my kids to go back into crowded rooms because since they've been home they've been so much happier they've shown an interest in subjects that they never had any interest before and i think you know they're just happier more well-rounded human beings not not in this institution and so yeah i mean completely and you know anxiety levels are down uh, i think um i saw a report the other day peter gray was talking about this i think um like suicide rates are down in teens i mean like come on guys like you know these are red flags that this is this is just basic simple stuff um but it's hard man it, it's just yeah it's, i mean it's, it's it's challenging particularly i feel like Britain as a nation has such a long and rich history of liberalism and being being tolerant of people's not fitting in the system and not doing exactly the same as everyone else. But I, I do feel that that is being slowly eroded and 
uniformity is becoming increasingly emphasized unless of course you're you're the right minority in which case you know then, then you've got some sort of protection but but it's uh yeah we're, we're sailing into slightly choppy waters but but yeah i think there's there's obviously yeah it's, it's still part of the narrative and what's being pushed and and if you don't if you're not on board with that exact and you're not all seeing from the same hymn sheet i feel increasingly you're looked on with suspicion and that you have you know you won't toe the line and frankly i think we need more human beings that don't toe the line <laughs> and that's what bitcoin is um is. you know they're not they're not towing any lines there um so for those people that um that are listening i just want to use you as a bit of an example because um you were homeschooled um all the way up to 16 many people's fears are if i homeschool my kids they're never going to be able to get to college they're never going to be able to get to university they're never going to be able to get a job you've done all three of those to a pretty high standard from uh, from the story you you typed out in your um, original um contact so what was what was that like getting um you know getting into the institutional uh, side of um, of education and um is there any stories that you could uh, share with us there yeah i'd love to so i um, my younger brother actually was the first of us who went to school. So he went um, in, he was in year 10, but he went in year nine because there was no space for him. And that was really around the fact that, that at that point he wanted to study medicine. And my parents were sort of like, okay, at this point we realize we're probably not best placed to prepare you for pursuing that sort of profession. And so we think it's probably in your interest at this point to, to go to school, which again is is really the approach I think you should have as a parent to school, which is here's this option where with certain career paths, unfortunately you have to jump certain hoops, um, or fortunately, you know, you may prefer to have had to to know that your your doctor has has jumped a certain number of hoops rather than is self taught or or whatever the case may be. So. So he was the first to go in, um, and and I I think there was a certain amount of like realizing the kind of like fear of of school because there was an element in I think all of us that was like okay because we had never been to school other than preschool like oh what's it going to be like are, are we going to be able to keep up um, and, and to be honest my my mother had kind of used it slightly as a threat <laughs> um when we were younger it was like you know do your work or i'll send you to school <laughs> and then you'll you'll have to do even even more homework if you're complaining about this this much you know um so there was a little bit of that but then i think when i saw my brother go and i saw um that he was doing well and that you know it, it kind of lost some of that um that fear so i was very into sports um very keen on that but i i'd had sort of limited amounts of opportunity to do team sports just because i wasn't in in school um and so i i applied um to i first of all did um five gcses in a year which was the 
minimum requirement um, to get into this uh, sixth form. Um, and you did that from, from home? You just bashed yeah, that out, so, no problem? Uh, I did a few through something called, um, I, th- I think it was called like Oxford Open Learning. Um, mm-hmm. I did a few just with like uh, some local teachers who actually like were willing to just tutor me a bit on the side. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, uh, I did those all kind of at home. Um, my dad's really helpful in that he's like, he's one of those people who remembers everything that they were ever taught. And so like it, it was, <laughs> I would quite often use him as a, as a resource and, you know, he would just look back over your maths or whatever and be like, Oh yeah, I'm, you know, still know how to do all of this and stuff like that. So, so that was really useful. Um, but yeah, I, I decided to to do those at home, um, and then was applying to um, a school called St George's, which, if you're a rugby fan, um, Owen Farrell, George Ford, Maratoje, um, Jack Singleton, who's been kind of on the fringes of the England team, um, we're all we're all students uh, there. So it's quite, uh, we're really close to Saracens, which is um, probably one of the most dominant English rugby clubs until they got into some trouble financially recently. Um, but yeah, so it's quite a cluster. And um, I was I was, I was, was a fairly big teenager and um, thought that I'd like the chance to, to play some rugby. So I was, I was quite interested in going to this school. Um, but when I when I applied, um, I had I had a kind of preference because my brother was already at the school, um, so they had to kind of like take the application seriously. But they were they were pretty concerned about me, um, to be honest. Uh, they invited my parents in for like a, a special like conversation about me and all the concerns that they had, um, where they were going to make the final decision on whether to let me into the school or not and um my parents um being the slightly controversial people that they are they're like we're just gonna bring seth with us because frankly we think he's a lot better at speaking for himself than we can do any any job of, of reassuring them about that so so all the um all the heads of the sixth form and, and various senior teachers were there um and I, I was brought in and they were all quite sort of shocked. Um, and they were like, oh, well, you know, we're going to say things that he might not want to hear or whatever. So essentially the gist of it was they didn't think I'd be able to keep up. They thought that um, I, I remember they had one phrase. It, it was a quite a high achieving school it, a few years ago at one state school of the year in the UK. So pretty um yeah, pretty high academics. And they said, you know, all of these children have been on a highway to success, you know, since they were four years old. And they're just, they've just been on this highway. And you've been like going along the back roads doing who knows what. And, and I just like immediately said back, I was like, yeah, that's really interesting. Don't you think there's a possibility that I might have seen or learned a few things on the back roads that all the kids on the same highway to success missed <laughs> and they they kind of there's a few like drawers dropped a few sort of like waiting moments and 
anyway, I think they were suitably convinced that that I I wasn't um, yeah I wasn't such a a failure that I wouldn't be able to keep up at all. Um, but they included me on academic probation. Um, I was only allowed to do um, three AS instead of four, which frankly, I, I didn't mind about too much. Um, but they were essentially going to do three months. And at any point in that three months, if they felt like I wasn't able to keep up, they would just like ask me to leave the school. Um, so, <laughs> so I joined with a kind of, um, I didn't have any aspirations to go to university or anything like that. It had always been something that I'd kind of thought both of my parents had gone to university, but I, I, I didn't have this kind of sense of, oh, you must, you must go to university. Um, I, I didn't expect to do um, all that well because obviously there were all these concerns about me keeping up. Um, but I do remember we sat exams, AS exams, and, and part of them were quite early in the year. Um, and I got my first results back and I was actually a bit confused because I hadn't ever read an exam sheet before, but I just saw all these, um, all these like whatever percentages and then like lowercase letters. And I sort of like, I, I asked my friend, I was like, is like, what, what does this actually mean? And he, he thought I was being like facetious. Um, he's like, cause he's like, oh yeah, sure. You get all over 90% in all your, in all your <laughs> AS exams. And they're all, and they're all like very high A's. And he's like, and now you're asking me what they mean. <laughs> and I was like, no, I, I just, I was genuine. I've not like read an exam sheet before. Um, so it was a pretty swift transition from, uh, academic probation to Seth, would you like to apply to Oxford or to Cambridge? <laughs> and, and, and suddenly I started being treated a, not, a lot nicer um, by my, oh. my various teachers. Um, I remember one moment in particular, we got sent off to these like sort of, it was just for people who were looking to apply to Oxford and Cambridge and like a very rough kind of like prep what you should expect. And I remember there was you going around in a circle talking about our grades, um, and and it's sort of like uh, uh, GCSEs, nine A stars, an A and a B, and then the next one sort of like eight A stars, three A's, or like twelve A stars, two B's, and like you know they've done like fifteen GCSEs or whatever. And then this one girl goes, you know, I got. I got seven A stars, uh, you know, a certain number of A's. I got a, a, a C in, or a D in design technology or something. Um, is that going to be a problem? And, and the woman who was kind of supervising it was going, well, you know, I think they will. I think, you know, I wouldn't like not apply just because you got that. that like, I, I don't think it's insurmountable that you got a D in design technology. And I'm like, I'm sitting over there thinking like, well, what the, what the heck does a D in design technology matter if you're studying, you know, economics at, at Oxford? Like the, the relevance of how good you are, like putting together your your circuit boards and drilling drilling nails in is is pretty insignificant. But but it, it came to me and I was like, 
Yeah, I did uh, five GCSEs. <laughs> I got an A star, an A, <laughs> and uh, three Bs. Uh, and and like everyone was like just taken aback. Like, wait, you only did five GCSEs? <laughs> and then and then they were like, what what were your AS results? And then I told them, and they were, oh, okay, okay, you can apply or whatever. Like, it's not gonna be. It's I can understand why you're in this room. But there was a moment where everyone was like, wait, you don't belong here. <laughs> um, and so there was, it was definitely a pretty quick transition from uh, certainly no expectations that I would do particularly well in. I, I thought I was smart, but I didn't think that I, it would translate very well to a school education system. Um, but the advantages that I did find that I had was, one, I was used to teaching myself stuff. So I remember everyone complaining that, uh, oh, now we're in A-levels, It's uh, which is the last two years of English schooling for, for people who aren't um, familiar with it. And you really narrow down your subjects at that point. But they, they were commenting like, oh, now we're at A-level. There's so little spoon feeding. You know, we used to we used to get all of the stuff given to us, but now there's so much... You know, they ask us to find our own books that we're going to read around the subjects rather than just giving us every single book that we're expected to read. Um, and and I was sort of like, wait, so I show up, sit there for an hour. Someone has already done the work of learning this subject and then is telling me everything that I need to know. At the end of the lesson, they give me a handout with all of the information I need to, like, memorize for the exam <laughs> and, like, all I have to do is like <laughs> pay attention in class and then mem- memorize some stuff. Like this seems pretty spoon fed to me <laughs> compared to when I was at home. It was like, if I wanted to learn something, I had to find someone who knew about it or find some source of the information. I had to find a way to, to actually retain that information. And, and so, yeah, I think in life, my home education has been far more, like what real life education is like than than what my uh, school education was um, other than the other than the hoop jumping which yeah there is still plenty of hoop jumping in life unfortunately <laughs> yeah exactly man that story is um it's so great but at the same time, it, it just makes me, uh, it gets me a little angry at that, the, the system. Like, you know, here you've got like a 16-year-old kid trying to apply to a school and, you you know, you're faced down by this bunch of disbelieving adults. And, you know, this is their job to inspire people, to be mentors. Yeah. Um, but all they're really worried about is the league tables of the school, that, you know, that that's it. That that's all they yeah. care about. They don't care about the kids that are coming through the system. And this is why so many kids just end up spat out at the other end. And it's just so damn, the, the, like the, the levels of depression in young teens and anxiety and, and, and stress is, is it's all because this damn system that these- It's dehumanizing fundamentally, the, the system if you if you fit it then you can be put on a, a pedestal and valued but if you don't you're yeah cast aside and, and made to feel like you don't have anything to offer or or give which often couldn't be further from the truth i mean there's i mean so many brilliant examples of people who obviously fail 
at school and and go on to do amazing things um, in life. But I think we would see a lot more of those people going on to do amazing things if it weren't for the ones that we lose to, yeah, whether it's crime or or suicide or, or all of these sort of things because they've just had their, their value and self-worth completely under undermined by a system that doesn't recognize the value that they have to offer the world by a yeah exactly by a uh, kind of a, a fiat education system really um you know just like you know just keep flooding the printing press of you know badly funded schools and badly funded teachers. I mean, it's this top down thing as well, isn't it? It's like, you know, you have old white guys in suits that set the curriculum at the very, very top of the pyramid. And then that gets passed down to, you know, like regional councils and then passed down to heads of schools, passed down to the staff room, passed down to the teachers. And by the time it's got to the teacher, there's nothing they can do. They can't teach. They can't, they can't teach how they want, what they want, to the time schedule that they know is going to be best taught. They're just puppets. They're, they're just as trapped in a system as the kids. Um, yeah. Did, do you leave school with a sense of self-worth and, and value or was it a quite sort of demeaning no, it was, experience it, for you? Fully demeaning. Um, like the, whole, the whole, I mean, primary was, was fine. Um, I, I remember that being, you know, just like uh, pretty much uh, a bunch of fun. And we're going back to the 80s, right? When, yeah, the late 80s. Um, that's when you could still walk or ride your bike to school, no problem. And, you know, there wasn't all of this uh, helicopter parenting that was going tiger mums, yeah. that kind of craziness. You know, your, your, your university career didn't begin at four back in the late 80s, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that, there were no negative sats, I guess, at that point. Or <laughs> <laughs> positive sats. Sats just didn't exist in... No. Sorry, uh, for, for listeners who aren't from England, sats are an, an early set of exams that a lot of kids sit nowadays. Um, uh, yeah, so there's the, the pun. <laughs> the pun ended, sats, or um, SATs, they call them in the, um, in the States, right? Or Is that the same? Uh, no, SATs are sets of exams that you take quite a lot later in the u.s educational system that determine like how you go into colleges um so, so in the uk now you sit some sats yeah. uh, just to try and um pigeon yeah. pigeonhole kids as soon as you can basically exactly yeah no i didn't realize that but then i you know i remember like the high school um wasn't a brilliant experience by any stretch of the imagination middle of the road like you said Boys aged between 11 and 16 do not want to be locked in a classroom, sat down. They just don't. Like force-fed, spoon-fed information. And, um, you know, we've all been through uh, like the, the psychological warfare in the classroom with uh, between peers and, you know, going through those strange times and like all of a sudden noticing girls. And it's just a weird, weird time. Uh, in our upbringing, and then they sprinkle all of this stress and doubt, and kind of yeah, they devalue you like uh, any chance they can get. God forbid you get an A, right? Um, yeah. 
before this is when it was just A, B, C, and D. I remember when A stars came in, and it's like, huh? Like an A's not good enough anymore? Like you know what? No, it wasn't A star plus minus. Yeah, I mean, you're like, like what? So now you get an A, but someone else got an A plus. So you, you, you it's, and then there's the tall poppy syndrome as well, where you know, especially you're young uh, among boys, if you are seen to be doing well, then you're a perfect target. You're a swap. You're a you know smarty smarty short pants or something like you know yeah yeah ways always an angle for someone so yeah. almost bred under achievement yeah it's just so damn weird when you when you really start delving into it socializing this is <laughs> god damn the amount of times i've got the the socializing myth busted it's like yeah. well, you know you, if you don't send your kids to school they'll never learn how to socialize they'll never be able to hold a conversation i'm like oh my god really you think school is a social environment do you I'm, remember what it I'm, was <laughs> yeah i've got i've got a brilliant story for that so um in my first so i went in year 12 which is the sort of penultimate year of english schooling um a junior year in the us um and I, because I was a September birthday, I was one of the older ones. So I had actually a lot of, for sports and stuff, I'd often been in older age groups. So I had a lot of friends in the year above just from the, the town in general. And so I, our common room was separated in terms of year 12 sit at one side and the year 13 sit at the other. And so I remember the first few weeks, I was actually spending more time with the year 13s and I would go up and speak to the different people that I know. And um, one guy who was in year 13, who um, his mother was a friend of mine. Um, I-, I learned, went to his mother and said, you know, that Seth kid, he's, he's really weird. And um, his mom said, oh, like, why, why do you think Seth is weird? He goes, well, he's in year 12, but he keeps hanging out with all of us year 13s, but he's not a year 13, he's a year 12. And she's like, there's a few months between you. Do do you really think he's the weird one (laughs) for for walking over to the other side of the the common room to to talk with you guys? And, And so like, I just think, yeah, it, it does create these like absurd things where you're like, no, I, I won't talk to you because you're like a year, you know, you, you're divided by, by the school year. And so, and so we can't associate. And it's just like, where else in life is that a relevant social skill to learn? <laughs> it's just absurd. Well, how does that set you up for a, um, you know, the workplace where you walk in your first day and then you're sat down next to a 37 year old. Yeah. You know, now you're colleagues and now you go down to the pub together. It's just like, mate, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just crazy. The whole thing. Um, yeah. The I, ability to talk to adults is so much more of a valuable skill than the ability to talk to like, I mean, it is great. I really love children. I like talking to children, but for the majority of your life, because human beings of the majority, for the majority of their lives are adults. So most, most of your time you're going to spend talking to adults and certainly people not in exactly the same age bracket as yourself. And so I think you can make a case to say a lot of school children are far less socialized than 
homeschooled children, assuming that you don't live on a farm in the middle of Iowa with only ever spoken to your mother, your brother <laughs> and your father, you know, <laughs> then I, I, I have met one or two of those homeschool kids. And even I would definitely admit, okay, there are some socialization issues, but, <laughs> but, but assuming you're not being entirely sheltered from human interaction, I, I just, I don't, I don't see how school does a better job. I know so many children who they just cannot talk to adults or, or anyone not in their exact age bracket because, well, they're being, they've been socialized, but socialized to, to only speak with, with people within 12 months of their, of their birthday. And it's just, yeah. That's why, um, you know, that this one, one of the biggest takeaways we get from people is like when they meet our kids, they're like, Oh my God, I just had a conversation with a nine-year-old. Like that blows their minds. And um, that's why Lauren loves coming on and like um, interacting with uh, with people like yourself and everybody else on the podcast or Samuel and Sophia's asked a few questions because they have fear of the adult. They, they, they're, exactly. they're curious. They want to interact and they want to um, learn and, and hear stories. Um, it's such a skill and, and it stands you apart from, from any list of numbers or upper or lowercase letters. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. But um, we should probably start talking about Bitcoin at some stage. Yeah, let's get on to it. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got, um, clearly a uh, philosophical background and, um, you know, self-taught. Uh, something led you down this path. Uh, yeah. You had the, uh, the early interaction with uh, a classmate. But yeah. things brought you back into the, into the orbit and I, I, I think I'm probably getting a feel that you're never leaving it again and <laughs> for you now and you want to stack as hard as you can, even find a job within the, um, within the realms of Bitcoin. Um, what, what brought you here? Like, you know, what was that? What was that pill and what was that journey? Yeah, so um, after, after university, I was applying to a lot of the sort of top strategic consulting um, firms, um, McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group, Deloitte, um, those those sorts of, and and it wasn't really out of like any built. I just sort of thought, well, I enjoy solving problems. I, I you know I like to travel. Okay, like consulting seems like a a classic sort of uh, choice. And, and what I was kind of finding in interviews and stuff like that was, firstly. Um, a lot of the candidates had done like two years of work or had their masters in one guy even had his masters in consulting, which I was like, how is that? How is that a degree? Like he'd done his, he'd done a, a, his uh, undergraduates at Warwick in economics and then a master's in consulting. And I was like, really? Like, have we really got to the stage where universities are just playing this game now that they're not even like, they're just creating sort of, business subjects and then and then offering degrees so they can offer some sort of value to you'll be guaranteed a job at the end of this so um anyway i was i was getting somewhere but but not far enough and i sort of realized like okay even though this is a grad job apparently just being a graduate and having not done nothing with your summers and you know done a bit of work experience isn't isn't going to cut it um so I I, uh, I had this surreal experience of having an interview in the Shard one day 
and then in a retail park in uh, sort of near Basingstoke the next day. <laughs> and it's sort of overlooking the Tower of London <laughs> one, one day and then, then a car park the next. Um, <laughs> but, but I uh, ended up taking a job in this very small um, startup that was looking to help people um, buy businesses in the UK. So doing mergers and acquisitions, really. Um, and after, as I was doing that, I was really interested in learning more about um, macroeconomics. I've always found that I learn better through auditory processes. I could, I never took a single note in university. I just sat in lectures and listened to what was being said. And I found that I could generally recall. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not like perfect, but I could generally comprehend and remember a huge amount more from a lecture than most people. And I think that was a coping mechanism because I was slow, slow to learn to write. Um, I just developed this ability to actually remember things that I had heard, <laughs> um, which, which is generally, I think, turned out to be more now that I can obviously write. Um, it's turned out to be more of a skill, but I still find if, if I'm writing, my retention of what is being said just drops off massively. So I tend to prefer to just sit and listen. Um, and so I was, yeah, in this, um, this period of um, finding, looking for a podcast, um, I found uh, the Investors podcast and just started um, from from ground zero. I always think, uh, I always think with, with a lot of things, often the beginnings are some of the most interesting things, even though it's not tends to be the most polished. I feel like the begins and ends of things, whether it's sort of historic cycles or, or whatever it might be, often tend to be the most interesting. So I always kind of believe in, even if I'm joining a podcast late that has already a lot of episodes, I love just like starting at the beginning and like seeing the, the progression and, and how it changes. Um, so, so I started at the beginning, was working my way through that. Also had been doing a lot of Khan Academy on sort of all the macroeconomics, all the trading, that sort of stuff. Um, and it was probably 2017 and I suddenly saw Bitcoin's price starting to really go. And at that point, I thought like, this is a tulip bubble. I was like, I was like, there seems so much mania around this whole idea. But, but I think I had enough understanding of the first principles that I was, I was interested to learn more and understand why that was, why that was happening. Um, and so what I concluded at that point, I, I went down the, the kind of blockchain is the real like amazing idea. Um, again, like Bitcoin has like too many issues around, you know, the speed of processing. I was still very much viewing it as a like, rather than a digital gold, more as a like, okay, how am I going to pay for my coffee in Bitcoin? And, you know, how is everyone going to be paying for their coffee in Bitcoin at once? And so I still just kind of thought, oh, you know, there's, there's too many issues with this. Um, but at, 
from that point on, I was like, I was watching it closely. And anything that I saw about Bitcoin, I was interested in in understanding. Um, so that was that was yeah, sort of 2017. Um, uh, I was working in mergers and acquisitions, as I said at that time. So I'd started to really understand how to read companies' balance sheets and profit and loss and value businesses. And so uh, at the time, um, I'd had quite a few seasons where I'd been doing fantasy football um, with English sort of Premier League players. I'd also done American football and done quite well in that. But the the year of 2018 or 19, I think, maybe 18, um, I was in out of, I think, a million players, I was number 42 in the world for a, a period of time. Um, and so, and so my dad at this point said to me, he's like, you obviously have like quite a gift for being able to project how things might be performing based on different. I mean, I was looking at heat maps of where players spent most of their time on the field, looking at how they perform you know, over historically against this team and against these sorts of defenders and all that sort of stuff. And, and you know, picking, picking my teams. He's like, You're, you obviously have a little bit of a knack for this. Why, why don't you, like, put it to something valuable like the stock market? You already, you already understand, like, a bit about business and valuation. And so I started to really delve into that. And I just came to the conclusion, like, whoa, this is all massively overvalued. Like this, this doesn't make any like financial sense to me. Like I can't, this, the risk reward ratios are just all out of whack. And, and I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, I'd actually convince my dad to invest in, in property in the U S at, in 2009 and so we bought a few rental properties and I'd helped to like renovate them. So this was when I was 15 or 16. So, so I'd had this kind of like desire to like identify like misplaced assets or oh, sorry, mispriced assets. And so I was looking at the stock market and being like, okay, it's still going up, but I don't want to have anything to do with it. I was like, I think it's going to, I think it's going to crash at some point. Um, and so then COVID hit, we saw the crash and I thought, uh, finally, this is going to be the time. Um, and I was watching it go down and I thought, I'm not going to do anything in terms of investment until we get out the other end of this and start actually seeing some good news about COVID um, that's, that's um, giving us really good economic data. I'm not going to try and pick the bottom, but I'm going to make sure I don't catch a falling knife, basically. Um, and then way before, the news just kept getting worse and the market just kept going up. And I thought, okay, I am like fully sold. The, the Fed and central banks in general, I already had a, a bit of an understanding of quantitative easing, but I was like, this is way more rigged than I ever imagined. And these central bankers have way bigger balls in terms of just like they don't care about fundamentals of economics at all and they're just gonna they're just gonna do what they're gonna do and so i thought i need to find a way 
to essentially short this activity. Now, I don't want to actually short the stock market because, quite frankly, it, the numbers can go up to, <laughs> to infinitely with fiat. And so that was when I thought, well, Bitcoin seems to have some of those characteristics. And I heard Preston um, Pish actually uh, on, a, on another one of his um, podcasts, um, another one of the TIP podcasts. And he just like did one of the best explanations of a bull case for Bitcoin. And at that point, having already been interested, but just I, for a long time, I was worried the government would come in and shut things down. I was like, okay, I think the game is afoot. And um, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I honestly felt like as a millennial, I felt like I've been kind of robbed by this entire system. And I was looking for a way to essentially get out to some extent, um, or at least have a, a significant amount of exposure to um, being out. Um, and so, yeah, sorry, that's a long, long-winded explanation, but that's how I eventually in just uh, a, a little before the, um, the halving um, became a, a, a true Bitcoiner. In, well, I, I, as I'm discovering, there's whole there's whole levels of uh, of what what a true Bitcoiner really is. I guess maybe until I'm running my own full node, uh, I I can't call myself, but I'm at least um, yeah, somewhat of a Bitcoiner. Let's put it that way. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, um, if you're a Bitcoiner, you're a Bitcoiner. That's yeah. um, Mate, that's awesome. And it's great to hear Preston has, uh, you know, he's got his name on another red pill. That's uh, oh. incredible work from Preston. He's such a such a great guy. And, you know, he's the thing about his podcast is he has to bite his tongue so many mm -hmm. times when yeah, yeah. Yeah. people, and I know he's probably like, he's probably got the mic on mute, like just screaming into it, just buy Bitcoin. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But obviously, no. Um, so great work, Preston. Yeah, he, he's just, is, I'm really like blown away. He obviously has, he's a person who seems to operate with so much authenticity, integrity, um, and really comes from a sound first principles, logical approach to economics, business, all of that sort of stuff. And so to hear someone like that, who's really taken the time to understand Bitcoin and be able to present it. I think for me, that was, that was the moment where like, okay, like he's, this isn't a, like a cowboy who's like interested in this because he wants to get rich quick. This is um, somebody who, yeah, who, who's really understands this from first principles and, and that's what, yeah, really pushed me over the edge. But so now your goal is just to head down and stack hard. Is that is that um, is that the that's the yeah. So I'm I'm really so I've always I've always had um, it's actually from my from my family background. My my dad is actually um, his his ancestry is all um, Mennonite. 
um, which is um, a lot of people would have heard of the Amish. I always describe Mennonites as like Amish people with like high tech Amish people. <laughs> so, so they, they, they come from the same stream, but the Amish at some point decided like, okay, you know, we need to stop using electricity and like when all this modern technology is a problem for us. Um, so it's very kind of close um, family groups. They were, um, they were incredibly persecuted by both Catholics and Protestants in, in Switzerland and Germany and parts of France like Alsace-Lorraine um, because they believed um, that it was wrong to baptize um, children as infants um, and they had a they because of their sort of understanding of the bible they felt that um, people's freedom to choose for themselves in terms of their their faith and religion was a really high value um, and so they were you know a lot of them were killed they were pacifists um, so refused to be involved in in wars, had a, a general distrust of um, the state and people in power, as as happens if you're if you're heavily persecuted and and being killed by those people, and, and a lot of them fled um, to the U.S. and Canada. And so, from my dad's side of the family, I I always had this kind of general belief, obviously that that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, and a general kind of distrust of of the state, and so, and so when I remember like being quite young and and talking with my uncles about you know the U.S. U.S. debt and the you know how how China was buying U.S. debt and the move you know away from a, a gold system, and, and so I I had this kind of, I guess, libertarian leading, a uh, general, general belief that, you know, celebration of, uh, of the military, you know, can, can really break down to a point and, and a general skepticism of the industrial military complex and, and all of these other things, which, which made, for me, Bitcoin, I think, all the more appealing in the classic Bitcoin fixes this <laughs> answer to answer to so many things. And so, yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm definitely, um, yeah, I'm, I'm currently, I, I lost my job at the start of, um, COVID. Uh, I was working in, in sales, um, for a, a SaaS startup and it was it was a bad time to be uh two months into a, a brand new role at a company of, of 20 employees with you know sort of venture capital funding <laughs> basically i was told thanks you've been wonderful <laughs> goodbye <laughs> um so i i'm I, i'm really although i am you know motivated by the opportunity to you know stack some more sats and i'm really quite i'm quite keen to to find some work or something that i feel like is going to be really valuable um and create sort of meaning and purpose in what i do um i'm i really enjoy work i really enjoy the 
the idea of a vaca- vocation and and something that is yeah that you're contributing to the world but i guess i've always been very i've always been very sort of low time preference um i was always that kid you know saving <laughs> all, all all the time and um me and my brother shared our money and i was always having to you know cover his eyes as we walked through Toys R Us, making, making sure that he didn't see anything that he wanted to spend all of our money on. Um, and so I, I've always had that, but I think what Bitcoin has created in me is, I, I guess the, inc- like, I'm trying to really, I am working um, just as like a, a cleaner for a, a charity at the moment, just because I was like, well, I can listen to podcasts and, and clean. So um, might as well do that and, and at least feel like I'm, I'm contributing something and, and being helpful to people. Um, but it's given me a real appreciation for freedom and the ability to, and choice, I, I guess, fundamentally. Um, so, although I'd really like to find a job and, and the next thing that I want to be doing. Um, yeah, I, I'm interested in, in ideas and people doing exciting things and being a part of that. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to not be in the like, Oh, you know, everyone my age is doing this and I'm falling behind and I'm off the, off the ladder. And I've come to the conclusion, you know, I think we're, we're going to live a long time. And certainly if we stay on a fiat system, we're going to be, we're going to be paying, we're going to be working for a very long time. And so, and so, uh, I think, yeah, there's, there's, life life is going to be going to be long and i'm not sure that i want to just be chasing the wrong thing or even worse just chasing my tail um and so that's the the sort of state that i'm in but i mean i'd like i like bitcoin's price to drop a little bit and buy some more or or just yeah you maybe when I move on to uh, maybe when I move on to back onto salary, I'll go to sort of um, coin floor or, or one of those other um, uh, dollar cost averaging, which is so dollar centric. I mean, the world that even our phrases yeah. get. <laughs> I know we're all tied to a dollar, unfortunately. Thank you. Um, um, yeah, I brought this up with Friar Hass, and um, he 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 said, yeah, we should just be calling it fiat cost averaging. <laughs> yeah, um, FCA auto buy. And it's, uh, it's so true. Unfortunately, FCA is already a <laughs> yeah, yeah. an acronym. <laughs> well, I wish you all the best of luck. And if there's anybody um, listening here, you know, reach out to Seth. Um, yeah, I mean, keep an eye out on, on Twitter. I know you, you're lurking there. Um, there's... Yep new companies being built all the time. And I think that's just going to happen and more people are going to drift into this, um, this world of Bitcoin, which will lead me to my final question. And, uh, I think you already know what it is, but, um, yeah, 
If you had one red pill left in your arsenal, who would you give that pill to and why? So I have obviously had quite a bit of time to think about this, uh, this question. Um, and, and I really, I really love it. I think it's, it's such a brilliant question. I think from, uh, I can understand why people say so many people obviously say Joe Rogan. Um, and I think there's a lot of association there of like the ideas seem to, to align, but for me in a, in a, in a sort of game theory perspective, if you're going to red pill someone, you, you don't want it to be someone who might, who might become a Bitcoiner without needing the red pill, as it were, someone, someone who might just discover it on their own. And so in some ways, I think, you know, you, you actually want to red pill your biggest enemy to, to some extent, assuming that their, um, their influence is significant. So I, for that reason, I would red pill um, Xi Jinping, the the president of China, and I, I think there are also another few reasons why I I think that that's like quite important. Like, firstly, I I think he's he is the most powerful person in the world, in my opinion. Um, I know like the U.S. is the most powerful nation, but having studied politics and and checks and balances in the U.S. political system. Uh, the the president's power is so limited, even although it's significantly more as as sort of um, as chief um, from from a war commander in chief from a war perspective. Um, I, I still think it's massively limited compared to uh, Xi Jinping's. Um, I think Bitcoin would be a massive. Uh, Trojan horse in the communist party, if it if it became a thing, um, and and I I really I I I know it's kind of been rumored, so I I don't know if it's completely sure, but but I heard that people in Wuhan were unable to use their um, WePay. Most of payments in China are, are digitized but they were unable to use them outside of Wuhan. So if you wanted to escape during the, the worst of the pandemic, you were suddenly unable to, your money wasn't able to work. So I, I don't know if it's, but without a doubt, China has the power to do that to its citizens. And I think obviously Bitcoin, if, if that became quite prevalent in China, would be obviously a way that people could avoid that sort of state control uh, over their life, which I, I think is a a great thing. I also think there's something beautifully poetic about um, China was the first country to use paper as a form of money. Um, and I think there would be something quite beautiful about them becoming uh, the first Bitcoin nation and and i think we'd we'd move from early game to end game in terms of uh, bitcoin game theory if 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 xi jinping starts stacking stats we're we're, we're moving to hyper bitcoinization uh, uh, pretty darn quickly i think um yeah i think the s2f down to the top side <laughs> for sure, for sure. so 
so that's that's my answer. What what have you thought? What have been your favorite answers other other than your own that that you've that you've heard over the? I think have you done sixty sixty one episodes now? Yeah, I was trying. I was trying to calculate how many hours of uh, how many hours I've listened to, and I, I think it's like close to. 120 maybe 110 hours or something like that i don't know what the hour count would be yeah it's yeah that's right 61 went out today danny de kroger um and he he called out putin actually so he's thinking along the that's st- a good shout yeah very good shout i think um yeah good question um i had fun with um knuts von holm on one of the very early um yeah episodes um kicking around um, Greta Thunberg with him, yeah. him being Swedish yeah. and um, him not being a big fan and, <laughs> and coming to the realization, actually that probably makes sense to red pill that generation. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, no, I like the generational thinking. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know, mate. You know, the, there were some sleepers in there, like Mark Yusko, Mark Yusko. I was, uh, that one cracked me up because I was expecting like everyone else. Now when I ask it, it's honestly, as you know, like Joe Rogan's probably 60, 70% of Trump is quite common as well. A lot of people say Trump. Yeah. Um, but he like, he didn't miss a beat. Mark Yusko, just the rock. I'm like, what? The, what? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's probably my favorite just because, yeah. um, and his reasoning around it. I wasn't expecting it from Mark, you know, this, yeah. You know, not to be disrespectful, disrespectful, ah, disrespectful. But uh, you know, he's an he's an aging white-haired guy, and you yeah. don't expect him to throw out <laughs> to be a rock fan. No, for sure. Um, I really like. I can't remember who it was, but somebody said the Pope, which I thought was actually, I thought that was actually quite clever because I think it's amazing the global soft power that the Pope actually has, and it is really, it's it's not concentrated in one nation in any way. And I think in that way, in that way, it's, it's got some similar advantages to Bitcoin in that Bitcoin is by no means a, a national idea. Um, I can't remember who said that. I can't, I'll have it in my notes somewhere. I'll have to go back and dig it yeah. out. I, might- I just remember thinking, oh, that's, that's that's clever like <laughs> they're not just yeah, the dalai lama uh which is another yeah another, another good one for sure i mean you know he's primed right the orange robes <laughs> yeah exactly you just need a little bitcoin symbol yeah. stuck on there and, <laughs> and it's fine that would be the best bitcoin stunt ever if somebody could embroider a great big be on the back of one of his gowns and have it. Yeah, I, I believe that he said he thinks he will be the last Dalai Lama ever. Like that, like that's a, a statement that he said. So, so maybe he thinks that Bitcoin like solves some of the issues that the Dalai Lama is. <laughs> maybe he's already a Bitcoiner. <laughs> thinking, yeah, definitely. All right, man. Well, Seth, it's been uh, it's been great getting to know you and and having you on the show. And um, like I said, thanks so much for reaching out and representing um, those underfollowed or underknown characters on, on Bitcoin Twitter. Um, where, where can people find you? And um, is there any um, kind of like parting last message that you would like to leave the listeners? Yeah. Um, just to you, Daniel, first of all, a huge um, thank you to having me on. Um, 
I think particularly in this period where I'm where I'm not working, it was it was it was yeah really great to have something that I was really excited about and and looking forward to. So firstly, I just really appreciate that and and all you're doing in the space, um, your generosity and um, yeah your your kind spiritedness with people. As I said in the message, which you missed out, I think you're a brilliant um, interviewer. I think your ability to just listen and, and coax out um, the the best in people is is astonishing. And um, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't feel like oh, I'm just a little guy in my house doing a podcast. I, I think you have a real gift and and a talent for this. Um, in terms of finding me. I'm only very recently um, back to Twitter. Um, I, I can't even remember what my uh, my handle was. I, I sort of abandoned it um, in in uh, in my teens or maybe early twenties. Um, but um, yeah, very much back for for the Bitcoin um, and the community. Um, so uh, people, if if they search Seth um, Peachy Peach like the fruit E Y, um, my DMs are definitely open and and I really love to yeah connect with anyone who um, shares this this interest or or even other interests um, but yeah just just really appreciative to be on here and and thank you for all that you're doing well thank you very much very kind words indeed and um, I am definitely blushing behind the camera here so <laughs> appreciate that. Well, uh, I think it's just the French suntan that you've got, guys. Yes. <laughs> that could be it. Well, thank you so much, mate, for spending the time and reaching out and um, all the very best of luck in the future. And um, yeah, keep stacking some sats and um, we'll meet one day in the meat space, I'm sure. Indeed. Look forward to it. Thanks, Dan. Bye. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening to that show with Seth. Um, hope you enjoyed that because uh, again like i said at the beginning of the show one of these guys that uh, that has reached out i mean at the moment on twitter he has like 36 followers so go follow him let's uh, let's welcome him into the bitcoin community let's um let's let's give him something to be um you know uh, happy and inspired about for and rewarded for for coming on the show and sharing such um, a personal story and a personal message that uh, you know it, it, this this could have resonated with just one or two, one or two people, but that's enough, and uh, that's what these podcasts are about. That's um, you know, when I started this, I never for one second thought somebody like Seth might might reach out to me and uh, be brave enough to come on and share his story as well, um, which is um, which is very heartwarming. Great to see, and uh, it's amazing to see how Bitcoin has started um, shaping his life as well, and now how he's thinking about the future and how. All of his decisions going forward as a young man, like every single career decision he's going to start making now is going to be with Bitcoin in mind and with a savings technology in mind. And this is very, very exciting for this generation. This is incredible. Um, You know, when I entered my career, savings was still possible, right? Um, You know, I could still... Although when you look back at it, you know, like um, I think interest rates at that point were like five or six percent in the mid '90s when I started um, earning my pitiful first wage. Um, but I could, I could still, I could still save a little, 
I could. It could just about beat inflation. Anyone coming around five to six, seven years after that, it just started getting eroded away very, very quickly. Um, you know, people talk about the the inflation benchmark or the inflation rate or the inflation target being around two to two and a half percent. We all know that's complete bullshit. We all know like real inflation, like the stuff that we actually buy, the goods and services that we use day to day that are important to us are going up in price, whether that's food, whether that's your your pint down the down the pub, whether that's um, you know necessities such as milk and clothing and you know whatever whatever your necessities are in whatever part of the world those prices are going up and um, you know it's sure a computer and a, a television might be going down um, but the real rate of inflation that's never two percent you're looking at like five to ten percent and to try and outpace that you just can't and this is what the generation like the millennials especially have been faced with and it's what's so crippling so to 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 speak to a young man now that has this this hope this ability this understanding this opportunity um and to be filled with um optimism i mean Guys, if that doesn't excite you, I don't know, like, you know, this is what will change the fabric of society. And this is something that, you know, fix the money, fix the world. It's that basic. And once more and more people of Seth's generation and younger, more more importantly, um, come to realize that, that's, that's going to be this shift. That's going to be this move away from the state monopolizing our monetary system like just ah we're here <laughs> this is happening and it is not gonna stop and it's young men like Seth coming onto podcasts and uh, and sharing his story um, hopefully inspiring other people to uh, to do the same thing and to start sharing their message um other people have talked on podcasts, um, Croesus, BTC, and, and uh, Brady, I think, um, were talk- yeah, it was these guys, were talking on their podcast about um, Bitcoin Twitter and the lurkers on Bitcoin Twitter. You know, you guys that have so much to offer, but there's still something kind of like keeping you back from entering into the fray. Get over that barrier, guys. You're welcome. The, the, the water is warm. Whatever it is, whatever it is you have to say, whatever it is, whether it's a meme, it, it, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, bring it. Bring the noise. We need as many people doing this, spreading as much of this message as we possibly can in as many different ways. And bring your skill set. You probably think, you know, you're pigeonholed in whatever you do in your day-to-day job and you don't have a skill set. That's nonsense. You know, self-banked is a perfect example. He's, um, you know, he's an, an anesthesiologist. I hope that's the right word. You know, he, he puts people to sleep by day and then wakes them up by night with his incredible memes. And his, um, his, his art is just uh, is brilliant. And his message is, is so, so good. And there's so many more people like that out there that can offer this, um, this value. Uh, Ryan Draycott is another one um, that's doing great work in the in the meme space. So go follow those guys, and uh, you'll find them as well at Twenty One Ism. 
Uh, I know I keep shilling those guys, but this, this is the reason. Go get inspired and, uh, and share their message as much as you can. Um, so a big thanks again to Seth. That was a big, big leap of faith. Really appreciate you doing that. Go follow him, reach out, say hi. Um, a big um, thank you to at Obi, uh, Obi uh, for um, supporting the show with CoinFloor. And you can go start stacking sats over there, coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Uh, big thanks to, to what you're doing across the pond, guys, over at Swan. You just keep getting better and better. Swanbitcoin.com forward slash once bitten if you want to go start stacking over there in the States. Um, if, you, if you're not in either of those countries, then hit up Friar, the Friar on Twitter at Friar Hass. He will list out for you all of the, um, the Bitcoin only uh, dollar cost average services, although we should call it fiat cost average because I don't know why we keep using this dollar term. Um, we have different currencies all over the world, so fiat cost averaging. Um, go hit up at Friar Hass on Twitter. He will have you covered. Thanks for sticking around, guys. Thanks, as always, for listening. Please um, reach out, like, share, comment, retweet, do whatever you do. Really appreciate it. I'll see you on the next show. And we've got some great guests coming up. They, they just keep getting better and better. And uh, I'm loving every minute of this. So thanks to everybody for your support. Bye-bye.